You're listening to the Disney One by One podcast, a chronological look at every Disney animated classic and beyond. Here's your host, Mike Rolfing. Hello and welcome once again to Disney One by One. This week, we've already talked about Oliver and Company, so I'm sure you're wondering what we're doing here and why there's an extra episode in your feed, but uh, this is a special bonus episode with a very special guest. So joining me today, he's an animator, he's a painter, he's a Disney Imagineer, and the director of this week's movie, Oliver and Company, Mr. George Scribner. Welcome to Disney One by One. Well, thank you very much. I'm honored to be asked. Yeah, it is, a, it is a pleasure to have you here, and I'm excited to dive into your work in uh, Disney films and Disney theme parks, which are, I actually, I'm wearing my Epcot shirt on accident today. You see that? The old Epcot logo. <laughs> that is a coincidence. It's a coincidence. So, uh, it looks great on you. It looks great. <laughs> so, George, I just want to start from the beginning briefly. Um, you were born in Panama. So I'm wondering uh, what that was like. That's that's very probably foreign to most of our listeners. Yeah, it's funny. You sometimes tell people you're from Panama. And they're not sure if you mean Panama City, Florida, or are, are you really? Where are you from? Yeah, it's a long story. My father moved to Panama after World War II, raised my brothers and I, went to school in the States. Yeah. I uh, went back to Panama to direct shorts and commercials, read an article that Disney was looking for animators. The nine old men and that generation were retiring. And they were looking to train just another generation of animators. This was, wow, the late 1970s. It was a long time ago. Anyway, I sent them a portfolio from Panama. And their first reaction was, it needs a lot of work, but they were very <laughs> encouraging. And, and don't call us, we'll call you. No, they were, they were actually, they were very generous. It was a very nice letter, very respectfully written, with some examples of what they were looking for. And at that point, I just decided, you know, uh, it was a, something I wanted to try as a career. I had directed theater. I could draw. I could draw pretty well. I'm a pretty strong draftsman. I had acted, and the description or my understanding of it was it was performing on paper. And that really the paper was just another vehicle to convey an emotion or tell a story. I go, well, I, this is something I would love to try. I didn't have any children. I was single. I thought, oh, I'm just going to do it. So I moved to L.A. and... <laughs> I kept submitting portfolios to Disney and at the same time working in other studios until I finally got hired on uh, The Black Cauldron as a character animator. When you were growing up in Panama, did you have access access to the Disney movies? Were you very familiar with the, with the catalog from the 60s and 70s or whenever that was? You know, to be honest, I wasn't. <laughs> I was, it wasn't like we couldn't, we didn't get movies from the States, but they weren't on the level that you did here in, in, in the United yeah. States. So they weren't on a sort of a regular feed and some were dubbed or some had subtitles or I just don't remember being that focused on them. I've met so many animators who just knew at the age of five or six or 10 that oh, this is what they wanted to do. It came very late in my life, but no, not really. Yeah, that's I did. The, I did theater when I was growing up and loved that side of performing, but not the, not the film side. So looking at your filmography, it seemed like you kind of jumped in the director role very quickly. <laughs> Is it as quick as it seems? I was in the right place at the right time. And I started as a character animator on Black Cauldron in 1983. I had directed theater. So I directed about four pieces of theater prior to getting an animation. So I had a comfort level with working with actors and understanding sort of basic narrative form. I had a sensitivity to it that to convey a story, you really needed a beginning, middle, and end. And 
I got into story. You, that's kind of the progression of events. You, if you wanted to become a director, you you really came out of. And it's still the same way. You know? Yeah. You work. If you started as a character animator, you transferred or you moved into story. And I just had an affinity for it. And to be honest with you, it was one of those. Just a lot of things came together very unexpectedly. There was a turnover at the studio. They were looking to change direction. I had. Ex- express an interest in directing and you know I had a painting teacher someone who I really liked and learned a lot from who had this great expression that he applied to painting but I thought it was really applicable to almost any endeavor or struggle or any goal that you had and that chance favors the prepared and I was thought wow that's really good (laughs) and I was really prepared and I got this opportunity to direct and Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, I it was I was a very happy little boy. It was it really worked out great. No, oh, that is great. So I have, I have kind of a dumb question, but I've always wanted to ask someone who's done this this question. I feel like people are really familiar about what what film directors do, especially in live action. But what are the duties of a director in an animated movie? How similar or different is it from something having that's live yeah, action? It's a, no, it's not a dumb question at all because <laughs> having done both. I directed live action, I directed theater, and animation, there were more layers to it. It was tiered. So you started as a director in animation working on the story side. What story are we telling and how are we shaping it? And you worked with a group of, I would call actors, but they were story people. Then once that was done, your focus shifted to animation or the actual performance of it. So then you redirected that same narrative, that same story, to a group of actors. Actually, um, let me take a step back. You directed voice talent. So that's the second sort of stage to this. So you have a script, you have a story you want to tell. You bring in actors who are capable of conveying with their voice some emotion or that can conjure up a sound that in an animator's brain triggers a performance. They can see it, they can hear it, and they can see it. I, and I know this from having animated you put headphones on and you listen to a line of dialogue over and over and over and it just suggests a certain inflection an accent a a rest point to it it's it's just like a performance it's just like a performing on stage you have a moment you hit a mark you pull back someone else's turn it's a dialogue of, of actors you record your dialogue you go into animation and after animation you go into post so to some extent i don't know how to put it it's it's very organic yeah. But it's very layered. So you're sort of directing the production and the same story a number of times versus theater. You have a script. You rehearse for three or four weeks by by week three lines, memorize, et cetera. It's, it takes a long yeah. <laughs> It takes a long time. You, you're in for the long haul. You have to prepare yourself mentally for the idea that this is at minimum a two to three year endeavor from concept to finish and on a movie like oliver and company how much input do you as the director have on the look and the feel or are you trusting your art directors trusting your animators are you designing characters what sort of how much are you involved in that aspect it varies by by the director i would say i was very involved with designers and the layout and the composition and the look of it but one of the reasons i wanted to work at disney was i knew i'd be working with people who were better than me and i was right there's people who are much better at art direction than I am. I'm, I'm a fairly good painter now. I wasn't then. And if I can convey an emotional context of a scene or a world that I'm trying to create, 
and hand that off to a concept person or someone who understands how to translate that verbal vision into pictures, they're better than me. There's just there's animators who are much better than I am. There were story people who were stronger than I am. You're, you're, uh, there was a woman who was a really, really funny woman. <laughs> there was two anecdotes to it. And one was she wanted to be the dumbest person in the room. She was my producer. She goes, I want to be the stupidest person in the room, but know enough to be able to delegate. Mm. Know enough to, you know what? You're the right person for that job. You're the right person for that job. Because it's very collaborative. One of the things about working on well, at Disney and on a project of that size is you really have to play well with others. You really have to be able to get along with it. It's a very collaborative. It can be tough to do. It's, it's hard to do to set your ego aside. If an idea of yours doesn't fly, it just doesn't grab this group. It can be for the faint of heart. It's, it's, it's not easy, but you hopefully rise above it to, wow, that's a much better idea than I ever would have thought of. So. Yeah, and I've seen plenty of videos of those pitch meetings and and storyboard sessions that seem pretty intense with a lot of people in the yeah. room. And uh, I mean, that's that's how Oliver and Company came about. This, and we talked about this in our episode that it was sort of a pitch meeting. They call it a gong show where this idea was originally pitched. Were you involved in that, or when did you? Uh, I wasn't. I had okay. just moved from animation and was beginning to be mentored by a man named Pete Young, who pitched that idea as one of the first. I think it was one of the first gong shows when the new administration came in. This was Jeffrey Katzenberg yeah. and Eliasner. Eliasner, yeah. And they convened the first of a couple, over the years of a couple of the guys. This was the first. Little Mermaid was approved. Oliver was approved. And basically, to go into concept, all right, let's see what we, what we can make of this. Let's, let's, let's go. It was intriguing. And then from that pitch, how much did the story evolve? <laughs> did it stay fairly similar, or is it, is it just years and years of development? It went through a number of iterations. You really don't know what you have until you put it up on what we call reels as an animatic. Now it's done digitally, but before it was done analog. But you have script pages, you do a million storyboards, you film the storyboards, you record dialogue, and then you look at it. It's like a template of the film in like comic book form. Oliver had an entirely different direction. Roy Disney, who was part of the story team, he wanted to engage and be part of it. He suggested, why don't we have a panda in the film? <laughs> but we spent a year with this panda, and it was so difficult. Well, whose story was it? Was it the kittens? Was it Oliver's story? Was it the panda's story? Was it Dodger's story? We had to throw so much work out after about a year. And did you come up with the idea of Oliver sort of being this valuable cat? No, that came out of the original story by Charles Dickens. Okay. So that premise that it just happened to be, in this case, what the, what the pitch was, was Oliver, Oliver Twist in New York with animals. Right. So it was basically just the story of Oliver, and Oliver turns out to be very valuable in the, in the novel. Apparently he's, there's some, anyway, whatever. No, that came out of the novel. I believe this was the time where the animation department was kind of became the outcasts. <laughs> Were you working in the in the Glendale building and kind of pushed away from Burbank? Yeah, they moved everyone out of the animation building to uh, a warehouse in Glendale. Yeah, were, were, were you sort of aware of all the internal struggle amongst executives or you just kind of like had your head down doing your job? More of that. I wasn't hired when I first applied, so it forced me to work at a lot of different studios and made me not only professional, I would say more professional, but a faster and more organized animator mm -hmm. so that I could function on a lot of different levels. What I'm getting at is when we moved from the lot to the warehouse, it was 
it's a business, you know, and we'll have to, it, this shouldn't change the kind of movies we're making. Sure. This is the way it goes. Like, I, I know it was upsetting to a lot of people, but it didn't bother me that much. And then, I mean, I feel like it was pretty soon after where, where the animation department earned their keep <laughs> back, yeah, pretty back much. to the lot. Yeah. I think if Oliver had not done well, I'm not sure they would have kept the division. There was a lot of push to, you know, the library alone was worth, I don't know, millions and millions of dollars. Well, why are we spending all this capital on labor and this much infrastructure? Let's just, we're done, you know, sell off the, sell off the library. And then, uh, and then we had Little Mermaid rescuers Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King, Pocahontas. I would say. Yeah, it was whoops! A, hey, what a, happened? Yeah, hey, wait pre- a minute. <laughs> yeah, pretty good jump start with Oliver and company. Yeah, there. it was Mermaid. You know what? We sort of teed it <laughs> up, but what, when Mermaid, what, 85, 90 million, something like that. Yeah, that did it. It was like just kidding. No, no, no we were, we were, we were just testing you. Um, a big part of Oliver and Company is some of the big, the big voice casts. Uh, we had Billy Joel and and Bette Midler and and others. What was it like uh, working with sort of some big names like that? It was a little intimidating. It was, uh, I had such a good time, though, because none of them made, you, made me feel personally like, well, who are you and what's the last thing you've done? And Billy Joel was just really delightful. He was funny and engaging. He'd get into the mood and, hey, yeah, whoa, I got that line. Yeah, I stood with him in, instead of sitting in the booth by acted against him so he had pages i had pages just so just to get him fired up and into the the character sort of charge him up after sort of the initial meeting you know bet was wow bet midler but after the first initial meeting it's just you're wow we got to get this through this and what's the best way to do this and you kind of forget who you're working with you just it's a line of dialogue and you're not looking at the actor you're just listening and yeah okay that sounds good i think we can do something with so one thing we've talked quite a bit about on this show, going through all the, all of the movies, I think kind of starting with 101 Dalmatians is is the Xerox process of animation. And uh, I don't know if you get asked about this much, but I'm pretty curious about, and I know you use this method in Oliver and Company. Is that like a stylistic choice or is that a budgetary choice? Or what was sort of the reason for you and, and, and for that method? And I'd love to know kind of how it works from someone who's who's been involved in it firsthand. I liked it because it matched the mood of the film. Mm-hmm that it gave it a little bit of an edge. And we went for a looser cleanup line to give us that kind of, you know, sparkles the wrong word, but a little bit of energy in the, in the line. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was, you took a line drawing Xerox that literally Xerox and an acetate and it gave you a very crisp and yeah, it, it just, it gave the look of the film a little bit of an edge. And we were in New York city and we were trying to get something a little edgier. I hate that word, but you know, something with a little more that, but it, so it would really be a departure from some of the earlier Disney films. Sure. That we still had great characters and hopefully just as emotional, but, you know, told in today's terms. I mean, there's films being done now. We just watched Life of Pets. It was like, wow, it was awesome. Like, <laughs> it was unbelievable the stuff they're doing in films. Now. But no, in that, in that case, that was the look following the needs of the story. And then uh, I think you were involved to some extent on Lion King, Fantasia 2000, Dinosaur, at least at least in some capacity. Is there one of those that you kind of wish you, you were able to stick with? I was the first director on Lion King. It was a project that I'd heard about almost at the end of Oliver. I knew it was in development under Charlie Fink. He had a group of them. And it really appealed to me. Maybe because I was from Panama and I felt, wow, here was a chance to do an indigenous 
film, something based more native so we could use South African talent, voice talent, singers, you know, that we could anchor it somewhere else. So, you know, really, how exotic would that be? So I spent about a year on it and I was taken off of the movie. They wanted to go in a different direction. I wanted to go more naturalistic with it. So it goes, it's a business. And, you know, when it came out, it was, was I blown away by it. This is a really remarkable film. Not the film I would have made. That's neither here nor there, you know. And then uh, I'm curious. I'm curious what you think about all of the uh, live action versions of these Disney classics coming out these days, and if uh, if, uh, if you were asked to do an Oliver and Company one. <laughs> uh, one, I haven't been asked to do an Oliver and Company one. I don't think that's coming. I, I can just yeah. feel it. I just, I just don't sense it. And two, I respect it. I I sort of feel like really I, there isn't there aren't other properties we could be doing. But you know. Again, I have to put myself in the position, sort of another hat, where I think it's a producer. Well, these titles, that came out, what, 10, 15 years ago? And it's an entirely different generation. I have grandsons now. So for them, it would be an entirely different experience. They're great stories. Why not give it a try? Personally, would I, in that position approve it I, I don't think i would i'd probably start something else but yeah there's a, there's a few i haven't seen all of them yet I'm, I'm curious what aladdin is like and i'm super curious what lion king is going to be like just because they're basically so just, just reanimating the movie yeah so am i uh i have to admit beauty and the beast was really good it's yeah. very good i haven't seen aladdin yet and i want to see it you know try and keep an open mind yeah i like the cinderella one um a little bit more than beauty and the beast but they're, they're, it is interesting to see what they do with them it is interesting and in the right hands there, there's no reason you can't take the same story and give it an entirely different tone or you come at it from a different direction. It becomes more maybe this character story. Or So I, I've learned a long time ago, like, just because I think something doesn't work, like, what, <laughs> who am I? Like, yeah, get over that. Like, <laughs> it's a business. Yeah, yeah of course. I'd love to talk just a little bit about your your Disney Parks work, if you don't mind. Sure, yeah. Um, I think the thing I'm most familiar with is the is Mickey's Philhar Magic, which is now in Disneyland. I think they just opened it there just a few yeah, weeks ago. Right. I'm curious how directing a theme park attraction is different than directing a, a feature length film that goes to theaters. There are other challenges. You are directing a project that will be in the park 10, 15 years. A lot of repeat business. It has to hold up under that amount of time. We're dealing with audiences that speak a lot of different languages. So we try and keep dialogue to a minimum, particularly in PhilharMagic. We knew in PhilharMagic we wanted to create a 3D movie that was geared for family. The prior, a lot of the 3D movies before that were more like what we call flinch moments. They were more startling, a little, little a little too much for... Yeah, for, I remember Honey, I Shrunk the Audience and there's like mice running past your feet. <laughs> it was pretty creepy. Even I was like, man, this is this is hairy, man. Like, uh, So we wanted to create something a little more family-oriented. And I would say the other difference with directing films for the parks is you have an audience that isn't sitting still. So you have to grab them. You can't be subtle. You can't be oblique with story points or infer material so that they stop and think about it. You have parents with children. It's hot. They want to sit down. The kids are restless. You're, you're, there's so many distractions that they're taking away from your experience. So those films have to be big. The color, the narrative, 
the approach, the theater, the attraction, everything has to be amped up, not to the point where it's just overwhelming, but it, it, it is, it took, it took a while to learn it. You, you don't have a lot of time to kick around and ex expand exposition. You have to get going. Did you have to go through a lot of test audiences for that before you came up with the final project? No, in that case, we actually didn't. We pitched it. Are you talking about Philharmagic? Yeah. That in and of itself was just an idea. We all felt, wow, this feels very strong. We're, we're dealing with projects that and properties that had done remarkable, you know, had really done remarkably well at Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and Lion King. And by stringing them together with a through line of Donald. Yeah. We're trying to restore the orchestra with the hat that what, what he thought the magic hat would restore. Um, we certainly pitched it to a lot of people and got very good reactions. And very very early on, we knew we were onto something pretty strong. Yeah, it is. It is a really fun film, and I, it's I'm, one of my favorites. It's that and the Epcot, the Mexico Epcot, <laughs> my little my little jewel. Which was which I love that ride, and I am a huge three three Caballeros fan. That's like one of my favorite movies on this list, and no one agrees with me, but I love it. <laughs> no, 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 you're right. You're a genius. You're a god. <laughs> it is just like it is such a fascinating film. Like, and I and I know I mean the whole story behind it of Walt traveling down there with his crew, and I love that that ride became a three Caballeros ride after just kind of being a generic Mexico ride for a while. Again, this came out of I think Tom Fitzgerald at Imagineering. It was one of the first projects I worked on when I moved to Imagineering was Philharmagic and Three Caballeros. The Three Caballeros go to Mexico. It was like, come up with a storyline for it. So I came up with this idea of a party and race against time, ticking clock. And it was, to me, it was like a no-brainer. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Three Caballeros and they... We get to travel through Mexico with them. And you had already uh, worked extensively extensively with Donald Duck, so you're good to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, to me, he's one of the greatest characters on the planet. He, he's just, he's a lot of fun to work with because he's out on the extremes. Yeah. When he falls in love, when he gets angry, he's just really an entertaining character. Great character. Back to Philhar Magic, just real quick. Did Was it a challenge to... I guess convert some of the classic 2D Disney characters into CG because this whole uh, film is is in 3D uh, computer generated. It was probably the biggest challenge of the film of this short was how believable could we make that translation? Would they hold their characters? We were really really lucky that we had a lot of support in a number of ways from feature animation, and I knew everybody. I knew the leads because I had to work with them when I was still in Oliver and Company working at Pitch Animation. So I had a comfort level with them, but Glenn Keane worked on it, and Nick Ranieri worked on it, and Del Butoy worked on it. So we had other eyes looking at our work, looking at the, the how do we translate these figures into CG? And really, thank goodness, because again, talk about delegating, you know what, they have a better eye than I do. How are we gonna turn Lumiere? How, how, you know, you can cheat it when you turn it, you can, Right. Ariel by far was the toughest because she comes out the closest in space, in 3D space. That was the hardest. Yeah, well, it worked. And then, yeah, like I said, it's now in, in California Adventure. I think, is it in Tokyo as well? Paris, maybe? Yeah, it's both. I think it's in Paris and Tokyo, yeah. Uh, I just I would love for you to just talk a little bit about what, what you're up to these days. I know you said you're sort of uh, still consulting with Disney. I know you're doing a lot of painting. What's What are sort of your latest endeavors? Yeah, I'm still a consultant at Imagineering. I occasionally will do boards or do uh, like gags for them. They'll give me a situation. What would you, how would you plus this? How would you make this more entertaining? I teach painting kind of worldwide. I teach painting at Imagineering and I've taught in Shanghai and Florida. And I work on outside projects. I'm now a 
contractor. I'm incorporated and I'm a contractor. I'm directing a project in Canada at the moment, an animation project. Yeah. So uh, Oliver and Company, the uh, 27th movie on our list in this in this long line of, of incredible Disney films. What do you hope its, its legacy will be uh, years and years in the future? To quote Tito, if this is torture, chain me to the wall. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a great way to wrap this up. And that is one of my favorite lines in the movie, for sure. (laughs) It it, it was an ad lib. It came from a a director named Mike Gabriel. We were in the booth. And it it was just like, that is the greatest line at all I have ever heard. We gave it to Cheech. He thought it was the greatest thing he'd ever heard. So. Yeah, yeah, it is great. I remember seeing that in the in the trailer as a little kid, and and it, it's still uh, stuck in my mind for sure. <laughs> it is the greatest line. And, and I ran, I'll make this quick. I ran into yep. Cheech Marin. He performed locally. I live in Santa Clarita, California. He performed locally. I went backstage and reminded him of the line, and he goes, "Oh yeah, man, that was a good line." He <laughs> <laughs> was, was great. He was great. Oh, that's great. And uh, if our listeners want to want to check out your work, they can visit ScribnerArt.com, correct? That's correct. George, thank you so much for joining me today. It was, it was a real pleasure to talk to you. You're welcome. And thanks. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate that. And uh, as I said on our Wednesday episode, we'll be back next week with The Little Mermaid. And that's our halfway point on this list. So we'll see you then. Thanks for listening to the Disney One by One podcast. If you have any questions or suggestions, send us an email to Disney1x1 at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Disney1x1 and at Disney1x1.com. We'll be back next week with another exciting episode of the Disney One by One podcast. <laughs>